Testament book of Romans, page 797 in the Church Bibles. And in just a moment or two, we're going to begin reading in verse 9, Romans chapter 3 and verse 9. And again, page 797 in our Church Bibles. All right, let's get right to it. Verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. I mean, don't you want to just say thank God after reading that? Just thank God that is true. Let's, let's pray. Father, since we cannot deliver ourselves from our sin and our brokenness, we need a rescuer. And we thank you that only in Christ do we have one. And since, God, we sometimes behave and we think otherwise, we need you to please teach us from this text, taking us, Father, by your power and your love to the very heart of the matter. And in that, please give us some beautiful graces at capacities we have never known and certainly could never deserve and work against those things now with work against you. For Jesus' sake, we ask. Amen. Two weeks ago, I came across a lovely little diary uh, one could purchase for their Christian devotional time. It was the beginning of the year and those things come out and it had the usual things, plenty of, of space to write down your thoughts, pleasant pictures, you know, to stir the mind, and of course, it had the scripture for the day. However, what made the diary so unique was that when you tell them your name as you make out your order, they will personalize your diary by injecting your name into all the scriptures that they give for the given day. So think of it like this. Isaiah 41.10 would read something like, if I purchased the book, Joe, do not fear, for I am with you, Joe. Be not dismayed, Joe. I am your God, Joe. I will strengthen Joe and help Joe. I will uphold Joe with my righteous right hand. And if you think about it, that's a pretty nice way to begin the day. And when the nice lady on the advertisement, when she read her name injected into the text for marketing purposes, she was thrilled. I was thrilled for her. She did a great job. However, for the past few weeks, my mind has been in Romans chapter 3, 9, and following. And I just wonder, was anything like that in their book? I don't know, and hopefully for right reasons, I'm wondering... So think of this, just just for a moment. I wake up after a spectacular night's rest. I reach for my phone, turn on my Bible app, 
reached for my customized diary, ready to meet Jesus, and I read Romans 3.13. Do you see it there? Joe, your throat is an open grave. Joe, your tongue practices deceit. The poison of vipers is on your lips. Joe, your mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. The only thing that would be missing if my wife said amen or something like that. And you see, that would, something like that would be good for me to read. It would be disappointing to me and unhelpful to me if that wasn't part of the uh, little diary mix of scriptures. Because we say this a lot. It takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And I'm thinking of Paul in Acts 20 around verses 27 and 28. When he was leaving the church at Ephesus, he told them, I did not hesitate to, you, to preach you the whole counsel, the full counsel, the whole will of God. In other words, Paul said, I wasn't partial to anything at all. In fact, all I did was preach Christ and him crucified, which has to do with everything in the Bible. So you see Romans 3.13, that's the truth. It's foundational to the gospel. It gives to me a high view of God in order that I will not have a low view of my sin. It's who I am outside of Christ. And it can be, unfortunately, who I am even in Christ. And we all need to know who we are and if we're Christian, where we've been rescued from or what we've been rescued from. Who did that rescue come from? What was the cost and what it means and why it matters? And the minute I think or you think or we behave like we don't need grace or as much grace as the Bible tells us, then we, do no, we no longer understand what grace is. And for me, that would be trouble. And as you think about it, that was so much the trouble of the Jewish world. At that time, indeed, even the Gentile world, and of course, sometimes it's the trouble now. And the idea here is that both Jew and Gentile were operating under the framework, if we're going to get something from God, whether it be Yahweh or someone else, if we're going to get something from God, you're going to have to do something for God. That's usually right. If you're going to get something from God, you're going to have to do something for God. Seek him out. You know, find the secret rules or the secret thing, whatever you need to do to get the switch turned on and get to him. Many people still think that way. However, when you read the gospel, it just puts that away. And specifically for the Jews, even though they had the Bible, right? They had their Old Testament. They did not properly understand the right use of the Old Testament, specifically the right use of God's law. Because if they would have properly understood the law, they would have realized that it was intended to not, not to provide a ground of confidence for boasting, which they were doing, nor was it meant to give them the green light for judging, which they were doing. No, nor kind of like isolate themselves in order to secure a personal righteousness. So get away from the bad people because they might get your, you know, their bad germs. Nor was it meant as only a list of things to do or not do in order that they could secure their standing with God. Which, now listen carefully, when you read the four Gospels, Jesus dealt with that kind of thing all the time. Indeed, Sometimes it can be taught that way. Hey, little Jimmy, let's read the gospel. Look at that bad old rich young ruler. Look at that bad old Pharisee, always being so bad. That bad old priest. Just walk past that dear man. Jimmy, aren't you glad that we're not like them? Or, or Jimmy, do you want to be blessed? Then get back there and help that guy. 
Or Jimmy, you know, you can be better than them. Jimmy, we are a few thousand years removed from that. We've moved up the moral food chain a bit. We know better. We are not like them, Jimmy. And in those things, teaching the gospel as if we do not need a gospel at all. In essence, it's a crossless instruction. So the law wasn't given for any of that, but the law was given to pinpoint our sin, to define it, to reveal it at levels with a profound depth that it takes the Bible to give, leaving everyone with no excuse or some kind of personal resource to draw from and therefore sending us to Jesus so that we can be rescued and be, if you would, saved. So, Romans 3.20 is so clear. No one's going to be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather what? You see it there. We become awakened, conscious of our sin. That's God's word on God's law. So again, the right use of God's law, his commands are not, you know, intended to provide some kind of confidence or boasting, nor the green light for judging or isolating ourselves from others. Rather, the law was given to eliminate all of that. And also to eliminate any kind of like homemade remedies for righteousness that we would try to tie to the law. And kind of like I call it regional righteousness. Those are the things that you have to do to let people know, you know, you're part of the group. The law was given to eliminate all that in order to shine the light on Jesus Christ and a person's great need of a Savior, a substitute, someone to die for them. They need someone to stand before God for them. Triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who is the only one, the only one who enjoys standalone holiness. You understand that? He's the only one that has standalone holiness. So, because ignorance of God means our sin will not be exposed, Paul begins to expose sin. Paul's going to tell them, and he's going to tell us this morning, that the law was addressed to God's people to make them, you see it there, verse 20, fully conscious of their sin. Chapter 3, verse 9, to be aware that they're under the power of sin. And chapter 3, verse 19, the need to be silent and not try to justify ourselves before God because what we are doing or what we are not doing. And to do this, here's the thing. Paul's going to use the Bible. He's going to use the very book the Jews would use to promote their own righteousness to say, no, no, you are incredibly unrighteous. No, just bear with me, but that kind of happens today. People hold the Bible and go, oh, you're bad. And Paul's like, you guys are doing that, that context. And now I'm going to use the Bible to show you that you're unrighteous. Because the main difference between a Christian and a religious moralist is not so much their attitude towards their sins, but their attitude towards their good deeds. I mean, both Christians and Pharisees, they would repent of their sins, but only the Christian would also repent and admit the inadequacy of their righteousness and wouldn't dare try to use it as a weapon against others or a boast, verse 20, before God. So we have three points to move us through the text. They're all in the text. The first point, no one, that's verse 10 of chapter 3. Everyone, that's verse 20. And all who, that's verse 22. No one is our first point. And as you suspect, I know you know where I'm going. Paul has used every rational argument up till this point to say what 
chapter 1, verse 8 is saying. The whole world is, is in the same sinking boat, unrighteous, apart from faith in Christ. And now quoting from God's word, Old Testament books, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Psalms, and Isaiah, he gives God's word, and remember last week we said it was written in the emphatic sense, so it's kind of like a divine oracle. This is a thus saith moment. If you, if you were watching the movie, there'd be like thunder in the background and lightning. It was like, listen to me. And the, and the reason why it's written like that, because it's so hard to believe. So this is from God. Verse 11, no one understands me. Verse 11 being, no one seeks me. The phrase there, no one, six times in verses 10 to 18. Verse 12, everyone is turned away. Now, if you do further study, this might help you to separate it. So just look at verses 11 and 12. That's sin in ourselves. And the conclusion, of course, is we're under sin. Then verses 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. That's sin in our neighbors. Just look at your Bible. Verse 13, no truth. Verse 14, no love. 15, 16, 17, we fight. No peace. Then, so you have sin in ourselves, sin in our neighbors, and then sin in our God. Verse 18, no one fears God. Verses 19 to 20, everyone is under the guilt of sin. Now listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. This, this might help us as we get underway. This is what he says. The Bible does not say, is he a good man? The Bible does ask how much, does not ask how much good he does or whether he is respectable. It does not ask those questions at all. It says, every person is either under sin or under grace. In other words, we must always think of ourselves not primarily, primarily in terms of our addictions or, or any particular things that are true about us. It is our whole condition that matters. Let me use an analogy. If you visited a foreign country, the first thing they would want to know about you is not the color of your hair or your eyes or your bank balance or whether you're a nice person. The first thing they would want to know is what country you belong to. Are you a citizen of this country or a foreigner? They would want to know the realm to which you belong. Now, just... To make sure that was true, I, my son's a world traveler, and I sent a text to them this morning. Quick question, when you travel overseas and you go to the person who checks your passport in the airport, is the one question you're asked, where are you from? Thank you, love you. He says, yep. He answered at 10.40 a.m., by the way. Yep. And a lot of times they ask you, why are you traveling to their country? How long? And so on. So that's the idea. What realm are you under? Which, when you think about that, are you in or out, if you would? It doesn't mean that every person is, is as sinful as every other person. That if you counted up our sins per each other, that they would all be the same. That is not true. And, and again, just think about that. That's one of the reasons why people can be so judgmental. Because, you know, we're having a great month and we're like righteous. And we think that because we're righteous, we can get after that group. But we're having a bad month. We are unrighteous. We zip it. I mean, that kind of happens. So, the Bible's not saying that everybody sins the same amount. The Bible's just saying, look, the consequence is the same. We're all lost, there, and there are no degrees of lostness in the economy of God. Now, as humans, we have degrees of likeness. And we know this. The nicer you are to me, the more I'm going to like you. But you don't need any spiritual power to do that. That's Jesus in Luke 6. Still, here are two illustrations that I learned this week that will probably help us. Imagine that you are killed, just for a second, and one of the ways that you're killed is you're bitten by a snake, and you die in your sleep. 
The other way that you're killed is you're mauled by a tiger, terribly manipulated, blood, flesh, and bones everywhere, and you die in pieces. So one, you're dying in your sleep, <laughs> and the one, you're dying in pieces. I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh at that. But it's kind of funny, because it's only an illustration. The point is the person who died in their sleep any deader than the person who died all mangled up? Are there degrees of dead? Absolutely not. Or how about this one? This is a little bit nicer, but someone's still going to die. Sorry. Imagine there are three people trying to swim to Los Angeles to Hawaii. So you're in Los Angeles, you want to swim to Hawaii. One guy can't swim at all. He drowns 20 feet. Another is kind of like an average swimmer, and he drowns after about four miles. But then you have like Mr. Champion, and he's a great swimmer, and he goes around 32 miles, but he's not going to make it. So he drowns as well. Okay, they all drown. And although one of the guys was 4,000, roughly 4,000 times a better swimmer than the other one, they're all dead. They're all dead. They didn't even make it a fraction of the way to Hawaii. That's the idea. In the same way, the religious person may trust in their morality and outwardly shine brighter than most. And the unbeliever, uh, pagan, might just trust in themselves. But neither of those two people are trusting in Christ for their salvation. They do not believe Romans 3, 9 through 20. They are, if you would, unbelievers. The religious person, again, they may be morally better. But neither they nor the pagan come close to the righteousness that God requires. And so to prove that, look down in your Bibles, please, if it's open, verse 10. To prove there's no one righteous. And to show that all are lost and condemned to perish, everybody's equally under sin, verse 9. Paul lays out his case, again, with the Bible, the Old Testament. And so here are a number of things he says. Number one, we're all guilty and condemned. Our best deeds, our best performances useless. Can't create a standing with God. Can't even improve a standing with God. The deeds are not truly good. That's verse 12b. Self-serving ways of avoiding God's salvation. If you want another text, Romans 10.3 is a good use there. Then secondly, look at verse 11a. Sin clouds and darkens the thinking. Thinking about spiritual issues. That's, That's us by nature. God's truth cannot be understood. Um, Here's a text from Ephesians 4.18. Paul, speaking of the unbeliever, they are darkened in their understanding because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Notice that the ignorance does not cause the hardness of heart, but the hardness of heart, their sin, causes the ignorance, which leads to a lack of understanding, which leads to a person to filter out a whole lot of reality. Do you understand what I mean? Because we do the same things at times. We, we, we have so much denial about our capacity and our actual unrighteousness before a holy God. So we don't see the holiness and the sovereignty of God or the sinfulness and weakness of ourselves. So the moralist, he deals by that by saying, you know what, I am going to get going and I'm going to do some good. I'm going to quiet that voice down. And the pagan, the unbeliever says, just back off. Just leave me alone. This is my life. I'll live it my way. And as a result, by nature, we are blind, and thus our thinking is off, and it doesn't work. Third, our motives, verse 11b, no one seeks for God. None of us want to find God as he is by nature at all. Rather, we're running from, and we're hiding from him in all that we do. Now, sometimes we run to the God of our imagination, 
who is eerily a whole lot like us. But he's not the God of the Bible. So a person might have a problem in their lives and realize they need forgiveness to quiet their guilt. Or they need inner peace to remove that anxiety. Or they need power and wisdom to deal with some particular problem. Or they need some type of, you know, mystical experience to deal with their inner emptiness or just kind of like move them up the spiritual chain. But those things, in seeking God for those things, they're not the same as coming face to face with a holy, living, sovereign God. It's actually seeking for what God can give us, but not for who he is. And what Paul is saying, and again, he's using the Old Testament to say it, is that the sin that we have and the self-centeredness so governs all our spiritual search for meaning and experience that we'll try to simply get blessings without prostrating before the living God. I mean, this makes sense. 92.5% of people in the world believe in some kind of higher power or something. That's us by nature. But as we said a few weeks ago, most don't believe he's the God of the Bible. Because even our spiritual seeking, which what the Jews did, I mean, let's be honest, they were spiritually seeking, but they were seeking God in such a way that it wasn't the real God. And how do we know that? Well, read the Gospels. When, when Jesus Christ was set right before them in all his beauty, what did they do? They rejected him. Spiritual religious people with the Bible in their hand, God set before them, we want him dead. Get him out of here. He's not like us. Four, on our will, all have turned away. There is no one who does good. That's Isaiah 53, 6, or at least really similar. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. That's the statement about our will, willfulness, our, our self-will. In other words, sin can be defined as our demand for self-determination. We want to choose our own path. We want to set our own course. And of course, now listen, religious people can be so self-deceiving that we could say, oh, God, help me, and, and then something takes place, and we go, yes, yes, this is from God. But it's really not. And only God knows. Only God knows. Number five, our tongues, verses 13 and 14. Their throats are open graves. This is about how sin affects our speech, our words, so the image here in the Greek is if you picture an open mouth, okay, and then you look inside the mouth, and there's a grave, and there's rotting dead bodies in it, sinful words, signs, and the cause of the decay. The, the two areas that are mentioned in verses 13 and 14, we know this. One is deceit or dishonesty, or the other one, bitterness and malice. So when we use our tongues to deceive, we kind of like lure people in with really nice speech. And then, boom, we lower the really bad speech. That's what Paul's talking about. Or it's just hell's bells. Our words are right from hell and we just spew them out. Six, our relationships, verses 15 to 17. There you see those words like shed blood and ruin and misery. Peace they do not know. That's what sin does to relationships. In our relationships, by nature, we want blood. We're so self-centered, so we fight with those so that we can get our own way. As a result, there's no peace. Now, let's just be honest. There's negotiated peace 
right? You do this, then I'll be good. And if you do this, then I'll be good. There's negotiated peace, but not meaningful, lasting peace. Because we will break our peace accords, which just get out a history book and try to argue against that. You won't be able to. Number seven, on our relationship with God, verse 18, no fear of God. And of course, the moment we sin in or out of Christ, essentially, it's, we're saying that you're not our leader. You're not our king. Fear of God is out the window. Because you see, the fear of God, which is a central idea in the Bible, and we could probably say this out loud, the beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. But remember Psalm 130, verse 4. It's beautiful. This is what it says. The psalmist says, I fear God because God forgives sins. Well, think about that for a minute. He fears God because God forgives sins. So this is not like a fear of punishment. It's rather an inner attitude of awe and respect and kind of soberness of mind that you're trembling with joy before the greatness of God who forgives sins. And perhaps because it's kind of hard for us to forgive the sins of others, And we're tempted to think that God is exactly like us. And then we find out he's not. And he willfully just loves to forgive. We shudder. We're a little afraid. And we got to say like, who are you, God? Who are you, God? And when you just listen to me for a moment, I have these terrible moments week by week where I'm like, something terrible is going to happen to my family. Somebody's going to do something really bad. And I ask myself, am I going to be able to forgive them? We're talking like death and stuff like that. And please, I'm sorry, that's weird, I know. But I still have to deal with it. And I think to myself, are you going to be able to be like the Amish and look them square in the eye and say, I forgive you? This is how one commentary I used ended. To be righteous is to live in conformity to God's law and the best person, the noblest, the most learned, the most philanthropic, the greatest idealist, the greatest thinker, the greatest speaker. No, I just added that. Says, say what you like. There's never been a man or a woman who can stand up to the test of the law. Drop your plumb line. They are not true to it. That's number one. No one is righteous. No one has stand-alone righteousness that can get them to God. Number two then makes great sense. Everyone quiet. Verse 19, do you see it there? Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world accountable to God. Verses 19 and 20, that's a condition where the gospel would take a person. And ultimately, everyone outside the gospel, ultimately their mouth will be silenced. But the Christian has had their mouth silenced by God. So you say, okay, what's the condition? And have we obtained it? Well, it's pretty simple. The condition is when you finally realize that you can't save yourself through your good deeds. And what you need to do to attain, if you would, what Paul is saying in 19 and 20, is you cry out for mercy. And you live within that framework. Sometimes failing, sometimes succeeding. But you live in You're living as a Christian. Because whether it was the written law delivered by Moses for God's people, or remember the God-given law, Romans 2, about the middle section there, the law that God wrote on the Gentiles' heart, so on every human heart, the verdict is absolutely clear. We are 
guilty. Listen to John Gerstner. Nothing stands between the sinner and God but the sinner's sin and good works. Now he's focusing on good works. Nothing can keep him from Christ but his delusion that he has good works of his own that can satisfy God. No, all they need is need. All they need is nothing. But can the sinners part with their, quote, virtues? They've done, they have done that are not, excuse me, they, they have none that are not imaginary, but they are real to them. So grace becomes unreal. Their eyes fixed on a mirage. If they will not drink real living water, they will die of thirst. And this is beautiful. Even with water all around them. So what he's saying is what keeps a person from Christ is not Christ is not only their sins, but the delusional value over overvalue of their virtues and good deeds. It's the refusal to repent of their sins and the refusal to repent of their good deeds, which they tried to use as a way to God. Now, let's be honest, and, and you're being really good listeners right now. Let's be honest. Some of us are far better at pulling the wool over other people's eyes than others. We played the game a long, long time. We, we know what to say. We know what to do. But no one can do that with God. However, when a person then would try to speak in their own defense. That's his verses 19 and 20. Paul here brings to mind a picture of a courtroom. And you're in God's courtroom. And you're given the opportunity to speak, but you have nothing to say because the weight of the evidence is so overwhelming that it's painful, but it's clear. Which is why you and I and the whole human race, everyone, that's the point there, everyone needs to be rescued. To be rescued. This is, this is J.B. Phillips from verse 19. No man can justify himself before God by a perfect performance of the law, law's demands. Indeed, it is the straight edge of the law that shows us how crooked we are. So in that context, how would you know that a person is a Christian in that context? A Christian who's, is one whose mouth has been, sh- has been shut before a holy God. Because the principal point of the law, the reason why God gave us the law, the commandments, is to not make men and women better, but to make them worse. Which is to say this, it shows them the depth of their sin, our sins, with a level of God-given knowledge and experiential and intellectual and internal knowledge so that we would be humbled and we would be broken, which is the best thing for us, and be terrified in some way and let the grace of God drive us to Jesus, asking for mercy. Have mercy on me, a sinner. A person will never celebrate grace as much as they should when they think they are more righteous than they actually are. That's Paul Tripp. Now let's just stay in that realm just for a minute. I want you to think if you're a parent or if you're a married couple or you're in relationships with people, whatever. If the principal point of the law of God, the moral law, the commandments, is to make men and women not better but worse, 
If that's true, if Romans 3.20 is true, then why in the world would we run our homes and run our marriages and run our relationships by, quote, laying down the law? Do you understand what I mean? We're going to lay down the law, and as soon as we lay down the law, everybody's going to walk straight. That's not gospel. God did not give us a law to make us right. He sent his son to die on a cross to accomplish that. So why would we think otherwise? Why would we think the key to our relationships is not the gospel, but pounding the law? So when I give them the law, (laughs) that's going to make them behave. Read Romans 7. Lord willing, we'll get to it eventually. See how that worked for Paul. It didn't. You are not doing this. Why are you not doing that? Well, okay, right, okay. You know, but in in the right way, I could say to you, You do the same thing. Romans 2, verses 1 and 2 and 3. You do the same thing, dad, mom, honey, friend. Would you look at Romans 1, verse 31, just for a second? There's a sin there. It's called senseless. That's the word. And and when I was doing my study back in Romans 1... That word was curious to me. Why is that a sin? And it is a sin. Because you know how it goes. You know, the big sins, we have like all kinds of groups for the big sins. Why isn't there a sin, a group for senseless? Right? So this is what it means. Without understanding. Ailing to put all the facts together. Unreasonable or a, to have a personal comprehension of the self which is true. And it describes a person failing to structure God-given information in a meaningful way and therefore unable to reach necessary conclusions. They are senseless. So if you walk in a room and you're like, what are you doing? What are you doing? So do you remember last week we said that the sin that we commit is relational before it ever becomes behavioral. In other words, it's the internal motives of why we do the bad, but it's also the internal motives of why we do the good. I want you to think with me again. Which do you think the world needs to hear most? First, hey, I like the Bible because it's helping me become a better person. And I'm trying to become a better person. I mean, that's great. Many people are trying to be better people. Some people without the Bible. But you could at least give me this. That that's a motive which really could have nothing to do with God and the cross and Jesus Christ. It could be something simple like this. I don't like feeling bad about myself. I think I'm better than that. So off I go with the Bible or no Bible and I'm going to fix me. It's law. So there's that. Or there's this. And again, the question was, what do you think the world needs to hear most? I'm a wicked person. I am unrighteous compared to a holy God outside of Christ. So I'm a sinner who has been shown mercy and grace by a loving God who sent his son into the world to die for my sin and to give me his righteousness so that I'm justified. I am right with God by faith, which means so much, but it does mean, Romans 5, I have peace with God no matter my condition. I have his righteousness as a gift and not by my personal achievement. And now God's judgment always decides for me and will never decide against me. So I look back at my sins with sorrow, but I have no dread of penalty. 
and no condemnation as well. I look at my present sins now and say, how could I? What is, what is wrong with you? But I can't make myself better on my own. So I say what the end of Romans 7 says. Wretched man that I am. He's going to rescue me from this body of death. Let's hold that thought for a second. Bad. Clearly see it. Who's going to rescue me? Well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to double down on my prayer time. I'm going to double down on my Bible time. I'm going to double down on good works. I'm going to double down. And I, all of those are great things. But what does Paul say? Thanks be to God who delivers me from my wretchedness through Jesus Christ our Lord. So whether I say it with tears or with a heart just bursting with joy, it's true. It's true. So you see, which of those two groups actually put before people our brokenness and Christ's righteousness? Which one is gospel? Which one needs a cross and a gift of righteousness? Number one, no one is righteous. Number two, everyone is silent before the bar of God's judgment. Finally, quickly, all who, all who what? Look at verse 22, please, if your Bible's open. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. And here's the point, to all who believe. God, I believe I am unrighteous and you had to seek me. I believe I have no defense before the bar of God's judgment and I can't help myself. And God, I believe all who believe in what Jesus has accomplished for sinners like me, I can have the gift of righteousness with all the lovely, and forgive me, all the lovely condiments that go with it. You see, there are lots of religions Probably some sermons who say human beings, just, just give them the list. So God sits there and says, here are my rules. Here's a list of things you need to do. If you pick them up, you know, here's my magical map. You do them, you'll find me, we'll be right. In other words, salvation is you finding God. But Christianity, the Christian faith, is ultimately the opposite. Salvation is God seeking and God finding me. And let me just give you one illustration and we're done. It's a beautiful story. I hope I tell it well. It's from Hosea. He's a prophet. And remember, Hosea was told by God, you see that lady Gomer, I want you to marry her. So Hosea does. It's not long after they are married, he begins to realize that she's a wayward woman unfaithful to him with what might feel like the most, the most worst kind of unfaithfulness. She, she's sexually unfaithful. She begins to have kids, but they're not his. He knows this. In fact, one of the names that he names the child is not mine. That's the translation, not mine. Finally, she just goes full tilt with her unfaithfulness. She leaves him. She leaves the kids she goes off to one man, then she goes off to another man, and then another man. She's breaking every promise. She's lying. Finally, the last man sells her into slavery. Hosea kind of turns to God and says, remind me why you wanted me to marry her. You put me in that? God says, essentially, so you will know something about my relationship to you. You'll know in some way what it's like for me. Now you know what it's like in some way to be me. And here's what I want you to do, Hosea. I want you to go where she is. I want you to get some money and you bid on her and I want you to purchase her freedom. 
I want you to take her back. And then you'll know in some way what it's like to be me. So there she is. The poor dear woman Gomer. And I say poor dear woman because I'm just as worse as she is. Romans 2, 1 to 3. Romans 3, 19 and 20 tells me to zip it. And any kind of judgment on her. She's guilty. She's paying for it. And she's bid on as a slave. She's probably stripped naked so the buyers could see what they were buying. So the, it's all so dirty. And she's standing there. And suddenly, who is before her? It's her husband, Hosea. And he buys her freedom. He walks up to her. And instead of berating her, he takes his cloak off. This is like Genesis 3 stuff and covers her nakedness. And says, now you come home and be my wife. That beautiful? You come home and you be my wife. It's moving. It's divine. It's what the world needs to know about Jesus. Because that is Christianity. And what Hosea did is nothing compared to what God has done for us. So yeah, Hosea's life was ruined for a time by the woman. But for a time. But guess what? It's worth it. Because this is what God is trying to say. Hosea, you just had to go to the next city. But I had to come from heaven to earth to find you. You were not seeking me. I had to seek you. I had to find you. I didn't just have to reach and dig down in my pockets to get the money out to purchase your freedom. I had to go to the cross. I had to suffer and die. I had to pay the penalty for your sins. Look at this sin. Somebody has to pay for it. So I was stripped naked on the cross. So you could clothe yourself with my robe of righteousness and I could tell you, you come home with me. You come home with me. I'm trying to figure out which ending. I've got two in my mind. Remember a couple of months ago, I mentioned in a sermon that I was reading like love letters? You probably don't. <laughs> well, I was. And I was asked the question, like, hey, why are you reading love letters? Like, something wrong at home? No, everything's fine at home. Back off a little bit. <laughs> well, this is the reason why I was reading it, because of this story. Because, like, if you hear this, and you're asleep in here, come on. Come on, right? You're not acquainted with your sin? Probably not. And if you're having a bad day, I'll give you that. This moves the heart. And then it stirs the mind. And it elevates Jesus Christ at levels we probably never have known. And grace becomes massive. And in the best of ways, it quiets down our speech. So that if we're going to say anything, it's going to be about Jesus. And what he did to secure for all of us in this room, if we belong to him, eternal life. Good news. That's the gospel. Thanks for your attention. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Jesus Christ has paid the full, the full price of our sin. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for not fearing death, not fearing people, rather loving people, submitting to death, and doing everything right for the Father so that the Father's love could be perfectly displayed through you. Please, God, 
because of this. Give us a vibrant and stable faith. Increase the things which would quiet the tongue and stir the mind to proper speech and proper thinking and put away all our greatest fears so that we could have rest, real rest, for Jesus' sake. Amen.